Karel, you have traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trenis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday only at twotruefreaks.com. Hey everybody, Magnus here. Basically, I need to do a little bit of clarification in terms of what the next few episodes are going to be all about because things ended up getting a little bit disorganized. So I need you to basically just disregard anything else you may hear to the contrary in this show and God knows others still to come and just be advised that this is episode number 138 of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and it's part one of a retrospective discussion concerning Man of Steel. Episode number 139 will be a continuation of this discussion, and then episode 140 is going to be the final part of this Man of Steel retrospective discussion that I'm going to be going through. And then, to cap the whole thing off, is going to be episode number 141, wherein all of the reactions concerning Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, that's where all that stuff is going to go. There you have it. So if you hear anything else to the, to the contrary in this episode, just ignore it. So enjoy the rest of the episode. Attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm friggin' sick. But, notwithstanding, I've spent the past few months rereading various Superman or Batman comics, all as prep for the theatrical release of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. And along with me, for at least part of the ride, has been Mr. John M. Wilson. Hey, John, how's it going? Good to be back, Trent, as always. I gotta tell you, it's good to have you back. I really, for, for this specific episode, I really appreciate you being here. And um, so, thank you. Hey, hey, I was happy to be invited. It's it's always, always fun to podcast about Superman. And, <laughs> and you're one of the main people I do that with, so it's always, it's always good to do. Mm, no, no monogamy with you, I see. <laughs> well, anyhow, this episode is uh, the wind-up of this mega-series that I've been working through lately, and honestly, it's come not a moment too soon either, because I'm pretty much worn the hell out. Now, the task this time around is actually pretty simple. John's here to shoot the bull with me over what he thought of Batman v Superman. What worked, what didn't, what could have been done better, etc., etc., but that's in the next segment. For this segment, for right now, I need you guys to mentally wind the clock back one year ago, because that's when John and I are recording this first segment. The year is still 2015 in this segment, and in this segment, what we're going to be talking about is Man of Steel. Mm-hmm. You see, Man of Steel came, back, uh, came out back in uh, 2013. And that was obviously two years ago at the time that John and I are recording this segment. And this is all occurring at a time really before too much information has really come out regarding Batman v Superman, you know, major spoilers and all of these sorts of things. They've really kept a lid on most of what's going on with the movie. Or if they haven't, I've just somehow missed all those spoiler re reports and everything. Basically, there's still a lot of unknown business going on with the DC Cinematic Universe, and so John and I wanted a chance to talk about Man of Steel without too much of our ideas and conceptions being challenged or overshadowed or the subject being changed or just what have you. So if you're here for all the Batman v Superman hoopla, guys, all in due time, all right? That's going to be in the next segment. It's not going anywhere. But for right now, let's take a look back at Man... Man of Steel for at least a little while. So the movie begins with the birth of Kal-El. So what did you think about that as a way to start the film, John? I was rather surprised. You know, you, the, the movie opens with that sort of like stone thing where they're panning through the curves. And it kind of reminded me of 89 Batman. And I was trying to figure out what exactly we're about to do. And then I realized that we're watching Lara give birth to Cal. And that is something that we have literally never seen before. Right. Ever. Right. And um, it was really cool to see there. And, you know, watching the film for the first time, I was just like, oh, wow, I, you know, this, this is new. But looking at the film as a whole, the natural birth of Cal and how that is such a crux of the plot and myth behind this film, starting with that was the best choice right yeah i i agreed with that and you know the thing was like i don't know about anybody else but i i wasn't anti-spoiler but i did go a little bit out of my way 
to avoid learning too much about this movie before it came out. I basically wanted to get hit with all of it all in, all at one time, right? So, I mean, you know, we knew sort of like the broad strokes of what was going to happen in the film, but I at least didn't didn't really know too much else be, uh, beyond that. And so this whole idea of the movie starting with the birth of Kal-El, as you say, I mean, number one, that's just a very original thing to show in live action. I, I really don't think we've ever seen that before unless... Man of Steel, the comic book series counts, but I don't think it should. But the other thing was, as you say, it's it, it it's one of those things that you see it at the moment and you don't fully understand how important that is until a little bit later on in the process. And so, anyway, I agree. But the other thing that really works well in that little scene is uh, the music. It's got this sort of majestic quality to it. Uh, you know, the chorale and everything. I it's it's really hard to put sensations into words but there's a sort of i don't like churchy quality to it you know and i don't know it's that's just what it reminded me of yeah the music in this film is very subtle and um it's it's something that you can either like or not like i'm not judging if if people don't like it um it doesn't it rarely comes out with a fanfare it rarely comes out with celebration um, and whenever there's high high action, there's a lot of drumming and action there too. But but the rest of the time, there's just very subtle musical cues that I really really like. And the Krypton scenes, yeah, it's just this haunting uh, refrain in the background. And um, <laughs> the one thing that did make me laugh about this scene, though, is I guess it's not it's not this particular shot, but it's a little bit later on. Is I guess it's not a Superman origin film without a shot of baby cow's penis. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> you just you just can't get away without without super penis on the on the on the screen somewhere. Well, and you know what the thing is? Arguably, we're getting two for the price of one here because uh, the kid from Superman, and we're getting way ahead of ourselves. But the the little boy from Superman the movie who played Naked Clark in the field is actually in this movie too. So, um, wow, I mean, just think, you know, he really can't get away from it, can he? <laughs> I wonder if he has dreams about it. Super penis is haunting him at night. Uh, uh, golly, <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, from there, uh, really the next major scene, uh, this is Jarrell basically warning the council of goings-on with Krypton. You know, and there's a... If you're a seasoned Superman fan, if this is a character that you've kind of studied your whole life, the way John and I have... It's really hard to make scenes like this one interesting because ultimately Jarrell has to present the council with, let's face it, Krypton is doomed. Yeah, persuasive, if not necessarily irrefutable evidence that the Kryptonian race is pretty much fucked. They have to find a way to blow him off, and then he has to find a way to get baby Kal-El on board the ship off planet, right? And there are only so many ways to dramatically bring that across. And so there's a sort of me mechanical quality to this scene. And I think it's sort of – it's inescapable considering that you don't really have the latitude to change very much with like the – I guess the skeleton of the story. That cannot change really too much. And so, I mean, on the one hand, Snyder and Goyer kind of have my sympathies here because of, you know, sort of how tied their hands are. But within the, the framework that they've got a, that, that they're kind of, I don't want to say stuck in, but they're, they're kind of confined to, you know, this really is a powerful and engaging uh, scene because you've basically got 
the the high elders of the Kryptonian race living in dreamland. I this I mean this really is just a really sick fucked up case of denial. I'm, I'm you know what do you think? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, obviously it's a culture, and I think they did a lot to make this look like a rich culture that has a history to it that we're we're only seeing the last chapter of. But they they are living in a rich sense of denial and. Um, with every with everyone in this in this race being so segmented in their in their duties, um, you know, later in the film, whenever Zod is talking to his chief person about this uh, the the codex being encoded in in uh, Cal's cells, it's almost like Zod is not used to using those words. Does he have to be alive to harvest this from his cells? And so I'm just wondering if maybe like the different casts of Krypton society just don't really understand at all the areas of each other's expertise. It's Jor's job to be the chief scientist. It's my job to sit here and make laws and wear a tall hat. So I don't understand the science he's saying. He must not be right. Yeah, pretty Actually, and you know what? That's an incredible observation. I hadn't actually, I'd never actually thought about it in those terms, but you know what? That, that, that's got disco potential to it. It really does actually hold up. The, and and you know I think there are sort of exceptions. I mean, Jarrell is not completely. He's obviously not completely in lockstep with the way Kryptonian society functions of everybody having a designated job and kind of blowing everything else off to the degree that he can be. I get the idea he is a little bit of a Renaissance man mm-hmm. because he's got a lot of swashbuckling adventures and fist fights and all these other things. He's a lot more accomplished than you'd think your average egghead scientist on Krypton would be. But, you know, you got to wonder how just how much just mentally does he have to overcome just to even uh, you know, have that sort of tete-a-tete with uh, Zod whenever they explode the council real good. You know, what does it take for him to uh, just on a psychological level to, to say, hey, dude, you're wrong, you know, because now he's talking to a military officer about governmental policy. I mean, you talk about being way the hell out of your depth. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a bit of a ballsy move for the chief scientist to tell, you know, the commander, uh, the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is that basically who Zod is? Pretty much, yeah. That he's wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I, what I thought we were supposed to take from that is he's basically Admiral Nimitz. So, yeah, okay. Although more so, but um, to your point though about like the visuals of it, it seems to me that this is a, uh, at least the Krypton the, the Krypton sequences and then elements of the rest of the story. The comic book influences for that really seem to come down to. Uh, I think primarily Man of Steel, like John mm-hmm. Burns' Man of Steel. Right. And you can't ignore the birthright uh, angle of it either. Now there are some few there there are a few Silver Age things in there like the Shattered Moon and whatnot. But I get the I don't I just get a very heavy uh, birthright Man of Steel type of vibe to this, and I think that's probably about as as good as maybe a, a point as any as just to kind of pause and say, you know, I maybe should have let off the discussion with this, but since we're kind of here. Is this the Superman movie that you wanted? Like going into this thing, you know, okay, I'm completely on board with Man of Steel. I wouldn't change a single thing or 
is it just a good movie? But you know, if you could have had your druthers, you might have wanted something else, stylistically or just whatever else. Um, I'm going to say yes, but not because of the film. Okay. I'm going to say yes because I wanted to have a party when this film came out. Mm-hmm. I wanted to to get online with my Superman fan friends and just say kind of like we've done with some of the Marvel films, just get online and say, Hey, what about this? And Oh my God, what about that? And Oh wow. Look at that thing over there. And I just so kind sorry. of, you know, jizz all over the movie, you know? Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and it's not, the thing is, it's not the movie's fault. And one of the producers, I don't know exactly who, if it was, if it was Snyder or, or, or whoever said this, uh, it might've been somebody higher up in, in Warner brothers, said that they're not out to make superhero films. They are out to make quality films that feature their superhero characters. Hmm. And I think this is what you've got here. You've got a film with some deep literary merit. Honestly, I got stuff out of the script in this I didn't get before. Themes with with Jonathan and Clark and stuff. And I, I've seen this film half, you know, at least half a dozen times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, there's more to it almost every time I watch it. It's a, it's a great film. Now, are there some directing choices and some, some, you know, choices in the humor level of the script and stuff like that? Or maybe how much action is really packed into that last hour of the film? Maybe there are some things we could tweak on that, but I, I do love the film. Well, I was sort of coming at this. Uh, you know, and forgive me if if this is um, a repeat either for you, John, or for you people listening. I was coming at Man of Steel really from a, I think, a pretty liberated point of view. Because the way I looked at it, I had 10 years of, of Silver Age comics, 15 years of Bronze Age comics. Uh, like, what was it, like 20 years of uh, Burn Age comics? I had all four seasons of Lois and Clark. I had 10 seasons of Smallville. I had Superman the movie, um, just uh, Superman the animated series, Fleischer stuff. I had more than enough Superman to shake a stick at. The first two seasons of The Adventures of Superman. Mm-hmm. Stuff that I can point to as, uh, as saying, you know what, you can, at least in my estimation of this character, you can give any one of those to people and say, here you go, this is Superman. And so I didn't feel like I needed Man of Steel. I needed Superman Returns, and I fucking needed it to be good, and I got nothing. And so, like, the pain of that, and I'm speaking as somebody who, you know, you know this entertainment that we consume and how it can sometimes hurt us, but uh, I gotta tell you, dude, the pain of that, I'm not sure if it's ever gonna go away. I mean, there's a degree to which I can, like, really identify with the people who felt stabbed in the back by Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace. I think mm-hmm. the, that movie's got some... It's got some good points to it. It's got some, some bad points to it. But overall, I feel like it was a worthwhile exercise. But there are people who felt totally kicked in the balls by The Phantom Menace. They see nothing good about it. It's, it, it was just... A, it, it's a fucking betrayal. And that's pretty much where I was coming from with Superman Returns. I mean, this is everything, to me, the character shouldn't be, especially in 2006. And so I was just, I don't know, once bitten, twice shy, just I, I was not as invested in 
Man of Steel being everything that that I dreamed of because at this point I've kind of come to the realization that's just not going to happen. But as to what I might have wanted from a Superman film, like in in my perfect world, it would have been it wouldn't have even been a Superman movie. It would have been this very Bronze Age, very pre-crisis sort of young Superboy movie. Mm-hmm. And that we sort of follow this character growing up and then evolving into Superman and if, what that transition is and what he needs to do in order to do that. And this could take place over really even over just a couple of movies. I mean, who cares? And then you can have a completely separate Superman franchise and then, you know, go through, you know, go through all of that. And I thought that there's more than enough dramatic mojo, especially to the pre-crisis Superman that you could have had, I'm convinced, easily five, six, seven movies just by showing more or less what was in those pre-crisis comics that you and I like so much. And is that really what the public mood wants from Superman right now? I really don't know the answer to that. I tend to think maybe not. But if we're talking only about what I want... Right, if you could control the world... Yeah, then that would be, you know, this sort of, like I say, uh, this sort of young Superboy movie where, you know, it starts off with him and Lex being friends and then, you know, whatever happens there happens there. And then you go on this process of, it's not revolution, it's evolution. This character growing up, becoming not just Superman, but becoming a man. And I would almost want to say that you could, this, if this sounds a, very similar to, to Smallville, just keep in mind that he's flying and he's wearing the outfit. But, you know, maybe take him on a kind of similar uh, a journey. And like I say, I'm not saying that to, to criticize Man of Steel because I really do enjoy it. But I don't regard this film as being definitive. I just simply enjoy watching it. And so I... It almost sounds like a backhanded compliment to say it that way, but you know, I'm just saying that this is not. I, 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 as as people listen to all this, I just don't want to come off as a gusher, is what I'm saying. That there are no flaws to this movie. I was on board with everything. This is blind adoration. Trust me, it's not. This is not necessarily the Superman movie that I would have wanted. I just simply enjoy what I what I received. Maybe that's right. the best way to put it. And I think, I mean, my understanding is you've seen Smallville a couple times, maybe an episode here and there. Correct. <laughs> and uh, yeah, would it be fair to say that your love for that version of the franchise, that version of the character, that you'd kind of want to see similar themes but done in a uh, feature film format rather than a 10-season episodic format? You know what? It, a little bit of a Smallville of the movie, although not really Smallville the movie. Correct, yeah. And – you know, that's a, a completely realistic, I think, uh, fair evaluation. By all means, yeah, I'll ride with that. Okay. Um, anyway, to get back on topic, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I fear that I may be a, a, a little bit gushing on this just because, like, well, actually, you know what? At this particular, you know, five-second moment in life, I really need to express some Superman love just because of, of, of stuff that's going on in, in the franchise right now. Okay. So yes. um, <laughs> so I may actually be a little bit on the um, v- vocal end of loving this film. But feel free to temper it with your own, with your own opinions because I, I can have a reasonable conversation. 
Okay, fair enough. That's fine. Um, but I guess to get back into our little uh, outline here, you've basically got uh, this moment where Jarrell steals the Kodaks and he escapes on the flying whatever the fuck that is. And again, I mean, to me, this just owes so much to it. I guess I, I, I keep saying birthright. I mean, I'm sure there were things like this in the pre-crisis era of comics, but for whatever reason, those flying whatever the hell they are, I just associate that with birthright. And this I is, think of uh, the world of Krypton miniseries because they were in that. Oh, they were. All right, well, fair enough. This is one of those things where I truly do believe that there's a point of divergence where we need to talk about David Goyer's Man of Steel and Zack Snyder's Man of Steel because I do think there are instances where those are two very different movies. Okay. And, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on that because I haven't thought about that before. Well, I get the idea that David Goyer basically wrote a script that was Superman in a way that's accessible to David Goyer personally. Zack Snyder then turned around and filmed that script. But where the divergence is, it comes from, I guess, the, the visual angle where Snyder was perhaps including things that weren't in the script and I don't think that Goyer necessarily intended. And things like I don't know, Kelex, for, for example, I mean... He may have had a robot in the script, but the idea of the of the robot looking the way that he does, or those flying fucking whales, whatever they are, just the aesthetics of Krypton being what it is, the shattered moon, things like that, that I don't know that... I, I've never actually read the script, so... <coughs> excuse me. So, I am sick, just so you know, but... Uh, but I think you're safe where you are. I don't think I'm contagious from uh, from this angle, so... Uh, right, the microphone wire is a nice condom. Yeah, there you go. But I, I just get the idea that sometimes there are moments in the script where Zack Snyder, the comic book geek, takes over from David Goyer, the – forgive me – the sort of puffed-up, blowhard asshole uh, film writer. <laughs> okay. And these are two men doing two different things. And that moment is – I'm not trying to beat this to death, but that moment is definitely one of those things where I don't know that – Snyder was necessarily doing what Goyer intended him to do. He was maybe exercising a little bit of uh, directorial license, shall we say. You mean, you mean the moment with the, the flying Haraka, I think is what he called it? Uh, correct. And other ones too, but that's to me that's maybe the, the biggest where – um, you know, maybe it's in the script. Jarrell jumps off the, the ledge and he lands on a flying whatever. Uh, but it doesn't say from the pre-crisis comics or, or from from Birthright or wherever else. And it, this is something that Snyder interpreted. I'm hoping that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, it's it's it, yeah, because you know it's said that every film is made three times. The the film is made when it's written, and the film is made when it's directed and shot, and the film is made in the editing room. So you actually have three, you know, conceivably very different films that exist before, you know, that go into the creation of the one that we all go see in the theater. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know enough about their personalities and their backgrounds to, to say yay or nay on that, but it certainly seems conceivable. There's a lot of really, I mean, I get off on the comic book stuff like that. I mean, seeing key likes and seeing the flying, whatever it's called. Um, those were things that were like, that made me happy. Um, the, actually the, the half hour on Krypton is my favorite part of the film. Um, 
You know what? I could see that. And, you know, the thing is, it's really not good to name names, but there were people that you and I know rather well uh, Mm -hmm. who were sort of on record saying early on that, you know, they don't want to see this film. And you know what? I'm not second guessing their decision. I'm not I'm not criticizing it, not doing anything like that. I'm just saying that, you know, the people who had that attitude, I do think that, you know, while the film itself wouldn't necessarily have been their cup of tea, this is one of those things, like the entire Krypton sequence, this is one of those things where I think any Superman fan could watch this and say, yeah, that's Krypton. Yeah. And, you know, there are there are a few just bits and pieces of the film where I think literally in like, if you don't like this stuff, you don't like Superman, but it's just, it's one of those moments where, you know, this is a, it, it really could have been a very unifying experience had it been allowed to be. So, but that's a different subject. So <laughs> anyway, but yeah, um, the, now from there, Jarrell flies back to, I guess the L homestead. Right. Uh, he and Laura have their moment where they're, I guess agonizing over – and if you think about it, I mean this is a kind of fucking insane thing to do. Load yeah, their they're, tr- they're, they're sending Moses off into the river. They're sending their baby out into space with, with only math and theory ensuring his survival. Right. And we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but um, – actually, you know what? No, I don't, want, I don't want to get too far ahead of it. But it, 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 is, it is relevant to mention that both – Jorel and Lara stay behind. That is, that's not incidental, you know, and that's not done from logistics either, you know. And if you watch other other versions of the story, there's usually just from a logistical standpoint, no way that Jorel or Lara or both could have accompanied Kalel to Earth. That's not the case here. So we're going to come back to that, but. I want to draw your attention to that now. And, but yeah, just the, you know, whatever Krypton's history is with space exploration and, you know, colonies and all this sorts of thing, all of those sorts of things, you can have all of that on your side. You know, it's working in your favor, but at the end of the day, you're sending a newborn child into outer fucking space completely alone to an alien and potentially hostile environment. That's crazy, you know? So, but it, it is nevertheless what happens. And I do think there's a moment with, and I cannot pronounce this actress's name, but Laura, it's all on her face that she's feeling not just the separation, the permanent separation of this child that she has just given birth to. Right. I think, you can interpret the enormity of what she's doing. It's right there on her face. She is, I don't want to say panicking, but I mean, holy shit, you know, the, the bigness of this is not lost on her. Not at yeah, all. Yeah, She is painfully aware of just exactly what they're doing. And, you know, she even says that, you know, it, we, we talked about it. It's, it sounded good in the, in my head space, but now that we're here, I really don't think I can do this. Yeah. It's just powerful. Then obviously, you know, Zod pimps in there. He and Jarrell have that really cool fight. And yeah, Jarrell, man of action. You know what? That I re- look. I really enjoy John Burns' uh, iteration of Jarrell. I dig that that version of the character. 
but to me, the a guy that's psychologically capable of doing the things that Jarrell, from a dramatic standpoint, has to do, which is send his child off into outer space, he's going to be a very hands-on type of guy in all aspects of life. He's going to be a – I don't know if I'd go so far as to call him like alpha male, but he's – But kind of hardcore at least in, in at least some respects. Yeah, and the idea of you know Jarrell, the the sort of – I don't know, historical student dilettante type. It worked fantastically well for what John Byrne was doing. I don't know that that's my, f- that's the most persuasive depiction of Jarrell that I've ever seen. This, I buy it, you know, and to the best of my knowledge, I don't know that Russell Crowe is coming back for Batman v Superman. And I, that kind of, bothers me because i just i loved all of his scenes as Jarrell. i wanted to get i wanted to get more of that more and more and more and this is one of those moments where you know him going toe-to-toe with zod it it, kind of does make you wonder you know who is more likely to win this fight you know zod being really he's he he was bred and created for this very thing to fight Mm -hmm. versus Jarrell, who is now working with these He's like I said already. He's already a Renaissance man, but now he's he maybe for the first time in centuries a Kryptonian is dealing with the instincts that uh, parents have about protecting their children. Nothing is going to be allowed to hurt this guy. So you've got the irresistible force up against the immovable object, and it was again. It's only later in the movie that you understand you know what was really at stake in mm-hmm. that fight. I mean, it was. I mean, it's on the it's on screen. Don't get me wrong, but there are other deeper issues that were going on there that aren't necessarily revealed right then. Right. And it's just incredibly powerful on the rewatch. And that's something about this movie in general that I think doesn't get a whole lot of press is this movie is eminently rewatchable. You watch it once, and you do get an entertaining film. But when you watch it again, now you understand the nuances and the layers and the texturing of it. And you mentioned it a minute ago that you know there is there is more here than Superman beating the fuck out of Zod. I mean, there is that. But we've got so much more than that here too, and I, it just it plays for me incredibly well. So anyway, I've been rambling. What you got? Um, around this time, just after this film came out, the comics started doing some Jarrell um, and Lara stuff with Krypton's past and that sort of thing. And that was really, really cool to watch. And we, we've heard that there's going to be a Krypton series. And I know I'll be that a there lot of with people, fucking bells on dude. <laughs> I know here's the, I, I understand it, it. There are fan. There's a branch of fandom out there and the person I'm quoting knows I'm talking about him, but I'm not going to call him out, but you know, you're my friend. I love you. I'm not insulting this. I'm just saying, there's a branch of Phantom out there that believes Krypton's purpose in the Superman mythos is to die. And that I, you know, and that those fans don't really need any more of Krypton because they already know the end of that fucking story. You yeah. know, it, it's, it's a point from which Superman spawns, but this film lays so much richness and so much culture to Krypton. And we're really just getting, I I come away from the film feeling like somewhere in, in the imagination verse, there's this like multi volume 
epic chronicling of the history of Krypton. Mm -hmm. And we're getting like the last segment of the last book in this Man of Steel film. And there's all this other stuff beforehand that can be seen. So seeing more Jor-El, seeing more of that man who has, you know, he was born to do one thing, but somewhere along the line, he got the idea to do something else. Somewhere along the line, he got the idea. And I don't know if he got the idea to, to bring Cal into the world naturally before or after he learned of Krypton's death. Because think about both of those have interesting story ramifications. Did he decide to have a natural child because Krypton's dying? Or did he have decide to have a natural child to start a revolution in Krypton and to make a cultural wave? Either one of those. I would yeah, love to either see that of those story is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, even though it's not going to be Russell Crowe in the Krypton film, uh, Krypton TV show. Doubtful, uh, yeah. I, I, I do want to see more of this version of that character. Yeah, I do as well. And you know what? I Again, this is not intended to be a shot across the bow, literally at anybody. But you know what? I tend to agree with you. You know, the, and what I, uh, you know, as far as, you know, there being a, just this vast, vast tapestry of story potential here that you can, that you can deal with. But another, another thing here is that I find that most people who have a very, uh, a functional view of Krypton. This is not, this is not to be, you know, uh, interpreted as a criticism, but I find that they tend to be very big fans of the John Byrne era of Superman. Mm -hmm. And let's face it for as interesting as that Krypton's history is, it truly is there only for one purpose. Whereas in the pre-crisis era, I do feel like, you know what, there were real characters there. There were real people living there. They had their own uh, agendas. They had their own dreams, their own struggles. And There was a freaking would-be wife for Superman who died. Yeah. That he could not save. Yeah. And he carried that with – God, that's such a good story. And, um, and I feel like there's just – there's a ton of potential, story potential, you know, to Krypton – Depending on, 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 on how it's presented. Now, this sort of – that sort of barren utopia that – that sort of uh, science scientific utopia that John Byrne created, there's really not a whole lot of room for conflict there. And so there's really not a whole lot of dramatic potential once you get past all the wars and everything. Right. He had to go back however many millennia to find, to find a story to tell. Yeah. And to be fair – that was, you know, part of John Byrne's purpose in creating that particular brand of Krypton. He expressly was making a Krypton that he wanted to show had had its time and deserved to die. And that's fine. That, that, that's a great narrative storytelling choice. It's just one that I was happy to see something different in this particular case. I agree. And the, I guess the universe building angle of it is... For me, the Krypton that we saw in Superman the movie, it didn't feel like a truly alien race. What it felt to me was that this was a bunch of – this is the way that Americans of the baby boomer generation, this is the way that they saw British people, you know? <laughs> okay. And 
because they're I mean, yeah, you know, they're I guess like from an aesthetic standpoint, it it certainly does look different. I think sort of visually boring, but um it they certainly it certainly does look different, but I mean, you know, I just hanging out with my parents as I have, hanging out with their friends and you know just getting their perspective including by the way some World War II um uh, veterans and then also uh, you know, people who've just had, you know, from my parents' generation now, people have just had occasion to, you know, interact a whole lot with, you know, British people. It feels like that's the way that they, they truly do view them that way, you know? Those sort of emotionally stunted, almost Vulcan-like people. And it's not a very fair view of them. Of course not. Of course not. But that's nevertheless the stereotype that they had. And I, this almost Vulcan-like race. And... Uh, of uh, of humanity, and that's just the way that 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 that's always come off to me. And I don't mean that in like a well, we're all white here, so I don't know if I can call that racist necessarily, but that's sort of maybe slightly jingoistic or or, mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. That sort of prejudicial view of those people across the pond. The, this is not British people. This is the way that American people at that time saw British people, you know. And it doesn't really feel different the krypton that we see here in man of steel feels absolutely different it's governed by um different as we've said uh, different social mores uh they've I, I think they've even got a very different sense of just basic fucking morality than than what we're familiar with here on earth certainly sexual morality is extremely different very, yeah, and, and almost creepily so, I think. And so, um, <laughs> yeah. and all of this, this isn't because you know it, it's weird. Like the minute you compliment something like that, it almost sounds like it's a sort of like it's a desire of your own. I don't mean it like that. It's just the differences there are what ultimately sell it for me. You know, this isn't just you know mankind. In a more high-tech Buck Rogers type of world, they truly are a different civilization. They're not just alien from us genetically. They're alien from us in other ways as well. And again, that plays into other things that are happening later on in the movie. But I think it was extremely important that we move on already because, my God, we're you know we, we haven't even gotten off Krypton yet. So um, anyway, so Zod's arrested. He gets tried. And then sentenced to the Phantom Zone. Now, just his means of being sent there, just from a uh, like a visual standpoint, like the aesthetics of it. I, honestly, I thought that was kind of weird and goofy. Again, definitely alien, but it was just a little bit fucking weird. I, you know, what do you think? That whole ice are, thing. Are you about the, the giant dongs that they flew up in? Yeah, basically. Yeah, and I'm 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 trying to think. You know, these giant dick shaped prison cells penetrating this this sort of holding weird cell. space transdimensional vagina <laughs> with tentacles and i'm like this is the most sexually repressed race that i mean my god man you know and it just keeps the the ship it just those little uh prison cells they just keep getting higher and higher and higher into the air and i'm like my god dude you've got to wade through the symbolism in this movie i mean these people have just got issues you know yeah, um, that was weird, and um, I mean, I don't really know what to say about it except that it was an odd visual choice. Now, I, I 
being the nerd that I am, I, my first thought is to try to wrap my head around how this, how the technology is supposed to be working there. And, mm-hmm. um, not quite sure that I ever really got that aspect to it, but, um, but it was more interesting than, you know, a bullhorn with a light beam that comes out of it. You know what? I can't argue with that. <laughs> so, um, actually, yeah, you know, that's a, actually a very good point. So now from there, um, Lady Lara returns to the L homestead. She locks up Jarrell's suit, and then she pretty much watches the planet explode. And this was one of those – we got a glimpse of it in one of the uh, trailers for Man of Steel. It was a powerful visual then, and it's more powerful in context where you're looking over Lara's shoulder, and she's just watching her her planet literally melt and disintegrate all around her. I've had this dream so many times since this film came out. I have watched like the world explode in my dreams, very visually similar to – the one the what what she's seeing in this film and it's it's very saddening and heartbreaking to think that she's actually sitting there watching her world explode mm-hmm. but when it's actually happening to you quote unquote actually happening to you in your dream it it it, it it's kind of makes you freak out and lose your shit it's 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 bad it does and i'm, I'm seeing somebody don't worry Uh, You know what? Uh, Of all people, your psychological stability, I have absolutely no doubts about. So, uh, but I was sitting there in the the theater watching this for the first time, and I realized, you know what? This moment is why Jarrell had to die. He had to die before Clark's ship, or rather, before the after Clark's ship departed, but before the planet blew up, because you have this. Really kind of sad moment with with Laura, where for all she knows, she's lost her government, she's lost her child, she's lost her husband, and she's watching her yeah, she's basically yeah, watching planet. her her planet get lost too. And it's like there is literally nothing left for this woman. she's got she's got nothing left to live for now. there's even if she could somehow survive, if there was a way for her to escape at this point, I think she's at such a low point. I don't think she'd take it. And that's fucking sad, man. You know, because you would think that just from a, from a survival instinct point of view, you know, you would, you see the, the world crashing down around you. You're going to just instinctively try to find some kind of safe place. She's not doing that. You know, I mean, she knows that she's doomed as much as anybody else, but just the instinct of it, you'd think would drive her. And, I don't think she cares anymore. And there's an interesting line that I think kind of ties into that, that fatalism is not the right word for it because it's not that, you know, everything deserves to go away and, and, you know, we're just going to sit here and watch it all die. But like mourning the loss of what could have been is um, she tells baby Cal make a better world than ours. And she says it with such, I don't know. Bitterness isn't the right word, but there's a like a resignation to it, maybe. Yeah. That 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 whatever they could have had, all potential has been lost. And that leads into actually one of my favorite elements of this of this movie. And since Laura mentioned it there, I feel like it's it's okay for us to talk about it here, because even though it's a little bit out of sequence. 
Jarrell gets more into it with Clark, or the AI Jarrell gets more into it with, with uh, Clark later on. But basically, Clark wasn't just sent to, to Earth to save his life. I mean, yeah, that's the obvious thing. But that's not all that's there. I mean, he was sent to Earth to spare his life, and then now that he's here, Jarrell has a mission for him. And where this this is one of the most crucial points of divergence with previous versions of Superman, except possibly Smallville, maybe. Is Jarrell in that? It's kind of weird. I haven't gotten to your latest episodes of the commentary on it yet, but I, I remember having really weird feelings about Jarrell and Smallville. Ah, well, um, and I almost don't want to spoil too much of my own uh, retrospectives there, but suffice it to say. In Smallville, Jarrell sent Clark to Earth. You wouldn't think so, but there is a good that's being served there. And really, maybe that's about as far into it as I can go. Here, Jarrell sent Clark to Earth to be sort of a, a leader, a beacon. Yes, he's there to, to help people save lives, use his powers for service, rather than self-interest but ultimately he's not there just to be a superhero there's there's this um again we're getting a little bit far ahead of ourselves here but it, there it, it's clear that Jarrell wants superman to be sort of i, I guess the the merging together of uh, of two people the best of krypton and they did have a lot of good things going for him mm-hmm and then also the best of Earth. Lead the people of Earth into a better tomorrow. And ultimately, I can't think of a more positive, aspirational view of Superman than that. He's not there to be a dictator. You know, um, like if you think about the 20th century's most vile and bloody dictators, that's not what he's here to be. Try to think of him more as sort of like this sort of science messiah guide. Make sense? Right. And uh, a, a, a benevolent and wise, you know, to put a cliched word on it, mm-hmm. leader. Exactly. And that is such a fresh, original idea for Superman that, I mean, a, a, apart from All-Star Superman, and even there, I don't think that was necessarily the agenda that Jarrell had, but apart from All-Star Superman... I'm really at a loss to think of any comic book version of Superman where that was explicit. And here it is. And that it, – it just it's, – it's powerful to me. And honestly, I, I, this is going to sound really mean and snarky, and I, I, and I apologize for it in advance. But to me, I don't understand why I should overlook something this punk rock just because some asshole out there doesn't like the fact that he doesn't wear the, the, the trunks on his Superman outfit in this film, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. So. Um, the, uh, I guess we transition from this point to Earth. Correct. And we start seeing Clark's adult life. And um, we get into... I think this film mm-hmm. had the perfect name based on the themes and the ideas expressed in it mm-hmm. because Clark has grown up 
as a man among men, learning how to be just like any other guy, learning how to keep his head down, even whenever every emotional urge in his body cries out for him to do otherwise, he has learned how to be a guy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there, there are different ways that this comes out in the film with the whole, you know, invasion and, and alien among us. And we never even knew. And the fear that comes out of that. And we see those themes coming up in the trailers for Batman versus Superman. And, but all that aside from just the idea that there is this guy who also is an alien with superpowers. Right. And so he's a man. And I think in the title of the film, the word man is like in big capital letters. That's the point of the Superman in this film. And the fact that he is also of steel, that he also is powered and also has extra abilities and can do other things is something that is unique to him and that he has to learn to deal with. But first and foremost, he's a human being. Agreed. And, and we see we see that coming out to play whenever he's just a guy on a ship and then he goes and saves a mine or an oil drill, whatever it was. Yeah, whatever the hell that thing was. I got the idea it was a, some kind of oil, like offshore oil rig, but I, for, I truly don't know. But that actually does lead to um, the first major Superman-centric action moment in the, in the movie. And it again, we got glimpses of this in the trailer, but – this was really Snyder's first real chance to sort of, I guess, sell his vision of what Superman using his powers really looks like. And the first glimpse of that that we really get was Clark tearing off that that metal door, mm-hmm. which obviously that's humanly impossible. I mean, nobody can do that. But the way that the the metal just sort of folded in on itself at the point where you know all the stress was being pulled uh, pulled o- uh, over by by Clark's hands, and then you have Clark himself; he's on fire, but he's not burning. Which again, there's a lot of Christian symbolism in this movie. You know, something that's on fire that's but not burning. Read into that right. whatever you want. Um, to rescue the. Uh, uh, the miners or whoever it is that you know the, those people are and then everything that that sort of unfolds from that i mean again this is sort of a very massive leap forward in terms of visualizing superman's powers and what that looks like in live action and i got to tell you it's just you know there are some, there are some things about this movie that sort of defy rational criticism that's one of them. It's just fucking cool to watch. It's fun. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guy, and a, that chromosome is definitely firing, you know, in, in moments like that. It's just cool. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, it's – and it's also, you know, if you think about the impact in the story, you're sitting there doing whatever, trying to get out of this, you know, life-dangering situation, and dude rips open your door and is on fire and is going to save you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is pretty, you know, awesome specimen of manhood at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's something else. No chest-shaving metrosexual bartender here, guys. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, probably don't need to talk too much shit about Brandon Routh, though. So, uh, from there, we get, you know, obviously the oil rig collapses in on, on Clark. He sort of bobs around. 
in the ocean for a little while, and we get the first major flashback in the movie. And this is – it's basically Clark and his schoolmates. They're, they're basically just chilling out in class. And Clark gets overwhelmed by his super hearing, and this is the first time that we really get a glimpse, because most of Clark's childhood ended up getting kind of skipped over. We only really get these glimpses back at it. Clark being overwhelmed by his super senses, and honestly, the toll that that took on his childhood, on his social life, I will say that Goyer definitely had his thinking cap on, because it comes out in the scene that the Kents kind of isolated Clark from other children, Precisely because of his strength, his heat vision, his super hearing, all of these things that would trip him the fuck out and could maybe get somebody killed. It had to be that way. And it was maybe a sort of he was lonely, but he wasn't alienated. He was he was isolated, but he's not imprisoned. He's not hostile about it. You know, this is just the way that things are. This is not a source of bitterness for the guy, though. You know, the fact that other kids at times look down on him. I mean, there's a lot of restraint here. Goyer isn't necessarily taking the easy way out here by saying, well, uh, Superman's just kind of a he, – he's just sort of an asshole hermit. You know, he, he, he resents his powers and all this alienation bullshit that I really don't think applies to Superman. Mm-hmm. He was protected from other children, and other children were protected from him. But there's no real resentment there. He's not traumatized by that. And I, I think that they weren't either. Um, in some of the off-screen material, you know, conversations with the creators and such, we're given the notion that the people of Smallville kind of look protectively and and, and guardianly, that's a word, mm-hmm. toward Clark. That, you know, for whatever reason and however that 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 might have come about, he's special and he's unique. And they kind of are, you know, protective of him. Now, they're not when they're little because Pete Ross, you know, calls him a dick splash, which was the first time I'd ever heard that word before. Really? Um, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, dick splash was just not one that, that was in my repertoire as a kid. <laughs> um, but, but as an adult, you they know. They get it. They get it. Well, and, you know, the thing of it is – trying to think of the best way to put it there is such a thing as sort of an open secret but those things have a way of fading over time i mean if this is something that the entire town was sitting on it's something that the entire town is not talking about an entire generation has grown and died since clark's childhood and it's not a stretch to think that the people who are in the know they're not talking about it even amongst each other originally when i read that you know, I thought, well, that's a little hard to believe. You mean to tell me that a, 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 a this town of I don't like nineteen thousand people, let's say, all of them can be trusted not to go to entertainment tonight? But then you start thinking about it. No, it doesn't have to be the entire town. It has to be basically people in Clark's grade, maybe people. Uh, and those, uh, those kids' parents. Yeah, two or three years younger, two or three years older. That's it. What you're talking about there is a swath of maybe. Like, what would you say? What is that? That's like 2,000 people? And if they're all on board with the same thing that, you know what? This is something that we need to keep keep a lid on. We don't speak of it even amongst each other, but we all know. 
I can actually buy that, you know. Um, I could believe that, you know, the something that you've lived with your entire life and just the bigness of it, how the fuck do you talk about this with somebody? And I, you get a little – again, you get a, a tiny little glimpse of that later on. Pete Ross, the adult Pete Ross, he makes this face when he meets with uh, Lois. I get the idea he has not ever talked about like the fullness of what happened. He's never really talked about that with anybody. Right. And certainly nobody outside of the circle. Oh yeah. And like, like I said, I mean it, what I originally wanted to think was I kind of wanted to snark. Yeah. This movie that's so realistic and yet we're supposed to believe the absolute virtuous best of this entire town of let's face it. Strangers people I've lived in small towns and there's this perception that everybody knows everybody else. It's not true. Not everybody knows. And for that matter, not everybody cares. But the way it's presented in the film, it's absolutely fucking believable. I buy it. Yeah. And, you know, the the one little bit we do get of how this might have come about is whenever after the uh, the bus save, mm-hmm. um, you know, Ms. Ross is calling Clark's abilities an act of God mm-hmm. and providential. Right. And, you know, we're in Midwestern religious America as a religious conservative in the old sense where – they're just good-hearted, old-fashioned people who live by their faith. Um, and they're, they have good reason to love and appreciate this aspect about Clark. And they're, they're you know, why would they want to spit that out there? And also, how many comics have you read where there was a little town in the podunk middle of nowhere that had a secret? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, whether it be whether it be like some ferocious monster that lives in Danny's basement or, or whatever that everyone knows about and no one talks. Right. That's actually a really good point. Actually, I all of those actually are really good points. I don't think I would have ever articulated it that way. The – fuck, and now I lost my train of thought, but – um. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's no, it, it's okay. It's just it, it it was actually I think a really good tie-in with what you were saying. But, um, yeah, actually the uh, I guess the religious angle to it, you know that the you know people who truly do believe in that, yeah, I I find that actually uh, extremely easy to believe. And so, anyway, the point is this is originally this was a little bit it, it was a little bit much to believe in, and so um. But again, upon review, not really. So there is a little bit of a pink elephant in this sequence, though. And um, well, actually, it's it's not pink, but uh, and it's not an elephant. And people are most assuredly talking about it. Clark rhetorically asks, "Well, what the fuck was I supposed to do, Dad? Let them all die?" And then Jonathan, in spite of this being a rhetorical question, actually does answer, and he says. Maybe. Now I the, had I had some thoughts on this, but I'll let you go first. Okay, fair enough. Um, a couple of things that we need to deal with here. First off, Jonathan, his firm belief is that Clark's presence on Earth is going to be a massive game changer. And I think based on – Again, the movie has – at the time that John uh, John and I are recording this, Batman v Superman has not come out yet. But it really does look like, based on the trailer, 
everything that Jonathan predicted is coming to pass in that movie. And so I don't want to I don't want to dwell on that too much except to say that he his fear was that mankind would number 1 discover Clark's existence and then number 2 assuming that they didn't destroy him at the very least they would never fully accept him and different people are going to have different manifestations of that here we have Clark already being set apart by Mrs. Ross and she's viewing this as like like John was just saying in religious terms this is uh, this is an act of providence these abilities are gifts from God etc etc there's everybody in the world is going to have a perspective on somebody who can do the things that Clark can do that is going to be probably the biggest single event in all of human history. The fact that somebody like Clark has come to Earth, he's here, he has powers. Those facts are going to change society, possibly unravel it. It may not be a good thing if it comes out too soon. Jonathan's, I guess his... His his point in all of this is we don't know what's going to happen, all right? All we know for sure is that the world will never be the same again. And once you out yourself, you don't get to put that back. You're out. That's it. And so when this happens, you've really got to pick your moment. And up until that moment, until it happens – Especially now when you're a kid. You know what, dude? It may very well come down to that. And he, and honestly, I don't even know if he was intellectualizing about it that much. He was just saying, well, maybe so, because blah, 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 blah. He wanted to transition to his next point. I don't even necessarily think he was arguing a, a death by abandonment. You know, And I do find it kind of interesting that the same fucking fandom that embraced Batman Begins, where Batman didn't have to uh, – he wasn't going to kill Ra's uh, al Ghul, but he didn't have to save him either. Somehow that's not murder, but let's not allow Jonathan to even suggest the possibility of, you know what, there could be a time when you have to abandon somebody. You know, I'm sorry. I really do think people made a mountain out of a fucking molehill on that. I'm, you know, it's I, – I don't know. It's like, it's like anything. You pick your battles in life. But right. the way that people reacted to that, just in the trailer, all right, because that was included in the trailer, the internet fucking broke in half over that. And hearing it in context, it does soften it somewhat. But the way that people responded to that, I mean, I don't know if they've really thought about the logical sort of implications of all of this. And I've been rambling. John, it's your turn. Well, and so what I was going to say has is, is concurrent with what you were saying. Um I think that the scene is a crucial aspect to the relationship between Jonathan and Clark in this version. I also think that putting it in isolation in the trailer does the storytelling a disservice. Because the fact of the matter is, Clark, uh, Jonathan Kent did not answer Clark, what was I supposed to do, let them all die? Jonathan Kent did not say, maybe, Period. He said a fucking paragraph that began with the word maybe. Mm -hmm. 
And he goes on to explore this, all the ideas that you were just saying about how, you know what? It's a really fucked up world out there. It's a really tricky, scared world out there. And I think what it comes down to is, Clark, you're just not old enough to let them know who you are yet. You're a kid. You, 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 you have to be careful. There's going to come a time where you're going to have to make a choice. And he says this in the paragraph. You're going to have to make a choice. And it's not a choice that he as a father thinks his son is ready to make yet. And if that if it was a choice between having the world react to a 13-year-old superpowered alien mm-hmm. that he was raising and loving as his son, if it was a choice between that and letting a bus full of kids die, well, fuck all. If you're a father, that's a really hard choice to make. You know? Yeah. The life of your son versus the life of t- 20 other kids, that's a really hard choice to make. And I don't fault Jonathan at all for saying, you know what, maybe maybe they should die because your life is going to get destroyed if people find out what you can do before you're ready to let them find that out. I agree. And uh, because of the fact that I have ADD, you actually sort of jogged my memory. Uh, just a moment ago, when we were talking about uh, the town of Smallville and you know they're keeping Clark's secret, I apologize for backtracking in the conversation like this. But there is a sort of rational angle to this where how many times, whether it was Superman 3 or what I really remember was uh, Superman number 0 from um, a Zero Month following Zero Hour back in the 90s. I've not read that, but go ahead. Okay, fair enough. Well, in each case, you saw a picture of – well, in the case of Superman 3, it was teenage Christopher Reeve. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Superman uh, Superman number zero, it was a, a, a yearbook picture, teenage Clark Kent. Both of them look a hell of a lot like fucking Superman. <laughs> and yeah. you know, it just stands to reason to me that, that the, the people that grew up seeing this guy run around without glasses or any of that, no, no pretense of a disguise whatsoever. All of them are going to somehow just fucking forget. I mean, this at least this aspect of them willfully protecting uh, Clark's secret at the very least, it doesn't insult their intelligence, you know? Mm. And so um, I, I apologize again for backtracking, but I, you know, it's just, that was a point I wanted to make. And obviously it sort of slipped my mind at the time. Well, no, it's one of those aspects of the mythos that, you know, for so many years was just treated as a gimme. He wears glasses to hide his identity. Mm-hmm. Okay. The end of the story. Let's go on and tell some stories now. Right. Um, and they're doing something more complex. And and it it, it, it has gotten some backlash. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't know if it's because it's different. Or if it's because you have to think about the ramifications more, I don't know. But I like the idea that they're exploring other possible ways that this could be handled. Yeah. Um, because as you've as you've iterated so many times in your show, Superman is myth. He is he is a rich, complex, seventy five year old myth. And myths can be explored in many, many different ways. It's why we have them. 
They are stories that make us think about ourselves, make us think about who we are and, and how we'd react in certain situations. But the stories themselves can be told and retold and retold. It's why there's not one single King Arthur narrative. There's right. a whole bunch of different ones. So I like that they're doing something different here, and I like that they're giving Smallville more of a role to play in the fact that Clark grew up there and now he's Superman. Right. Smallville did it differently, but Smallville also did it differently to the comics by letting everybody know who Clark was without the glasses and then turning him into Superman. Right. Man of Steel is doing the same thing, but with their own different spin on it. Very well said. And I I uh, tend to agree with you. And, you know, the thing is, to kind of move forward now, to go back to uh, what really was the next scene following, you know, maybe, the very next scene after that is Jonathan sort of, I guess, expounding upon his rationale for, for doing what he's doing. And specifically, the, the reaction that Clark has to this, discovering the fact that he is explicitly not from Earth. Here's his spaceship. And, oh, and by the way, here's this weird fucked up key that was with you. I don't know what the hell this is, but interesting uh, little memento, yes? Anyway, so cheers. Here you go. Clark has this line. This is, I think, one of the few references to Secret Origin in it, but this really does distill the way that Jonathan views the situation. I mean, you were not talking out of your ass just a minute ago when you were talking about what does Jonathan think is best for his son? Clark says, can't I just keep pretending that I'm your son? And Jonathan's answer to that is, you are my son. Now, I'm not a father, but sometimes in life there's there's a line in a movie that just just punches you right in the heart, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, if your heart doesn't swell from hearing something like that, then this is just not the movie for you. I, I don't know what to tell you. But there's this is not just, you know, arbitrary conflict introduced into the script because, you know, damn it, we need to turn audiences against Jonathan because, hey, he's a dickhead. He's a guy who doesn't know necessarily the best way to handle every possible situation that might come along he just knows that he wants to protect his son maintain normalcy for as long as he possibly fucking can and he's viewing this strictly in terms of you know biology notwithstanding family and that's very much the way that clark views it too and this is he doesn't react badly to the, I guess, to the news that he's not of Earth. I mean, because I'm sure on some level he kind of had to suspect something. But the way that he reacted in Secret Origin, this very whiny, petulant, insolent sort of way where he starts hammering away at a ship, here he, he doesn't do that. Instead, he feels this strange loneliness now, and I would say almost alienation from the human race that Jonathan immediately re-enfranchises him into. You are my son. And, you know, come what may, Jonathan's out to look after Clark's best interests. And, again, this this is one of those sort of mechanical scenes that it needs to happen. We need to see it. But at the same time, it's kind of hard to do this in a way that 
doesn't relate to some previous version of Superman. A lot of people wanted to relate this to um, a similar type of scene in uh, the Smallville pilot. And I guess I can see similarities in as much as Jonathan and Clark are kind of wearing similar types of clothes. <laughs> but the way that Tom Welling's Clark behaved – I mean, honestly, that was the catalyst that set Clark off the deep end until arguably the, se the series finale. You know, here, Clark takes it, uh, and which is to say here in Man of Steel, Clark takes it pretty much in stride. He just needs to know that his father is going to be there for him. And ultimately, that's enough. And that's a very different takeaway lesson. And, and again, that sort of feeds into the idea of myth. You can tell and retell these stories with different emphases, new elements, new arrangements, and it's always going to work. But at the same time, you still have to tell that story. And it's and, – and I'm not saying this to be critical. I'm just saying this, if anything, really, to be sympathetic to Goyer and, and uh, to Snyder that they've got to do this scene. But at the same time, it's information that the audience – if even if they didn't already know about this before they came into the movie – well, they were there for the Krypton scene, so they definitely know at least that much. Right. They do a very good job of investing you, not so much in in this moment as plot revelation, so much as character development. What does this mean to Clark to find out about this? What is Jonathan prepared to do to reassure and comfort his son? That is what makes it work. And he says, um, Jonathan, you know, when he shows Clark his ship, uh, Jonathan says that Jarrell, they don't know the name, but Jarrell sent you here for a reason, Clark. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. And that is a very good sort of segue back into the modern day in that it puts Clark's – wait a minute. Did I skip something here? No, I didn't. Okay. Um, wait, did we skip something here? Oh, um, yeah, well, yeah, we, Clark washed ashore in Seattle and he listened to some Soundgarden, but um, no, that's really, I guess, all we accidentally skipped, and that's not huge or anything, but anyway, yeah, yes. So You were talking about how he, he, he needs to um, find out what his father sent him there for. Exactly. I think you were going to say something with that. Yeah, and um, so that kind of puts the oil, I guess not so much the oil, the oil rig rescue, the oil rig job into some kind of better context. Clark is traveling the world now, and he's you get the idea he's working these sort of odd jobs here and there. He's basically looking for ways to help people and make a difference on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's searching for answers. And when we pick back up in the main narrative now, in real time, we see that Clark's gotten a job as a busboy at this diner in Canada, and it comes out that uh, some scientists have found what's called an anomalous object in the Canadian Antarctic, and Clark has his next lead. You know, this is a this is a potential explanation for maybe where I come from, or there could be some sort of link here. If scientists have no idea what the fuck this is, it could have something to do with me. And you know what? may or may not be obvious on the first viewing, but is obvious on on later viewings, is this is probably the 27th lead that he's tried to follow up. 
Right. Now, the fact that he's cluing in on it right now is handy for the storytelling and for the for the movie making and everything. But but he's been on this mission for some time. I mean, that's why he left home. Right. And he came back home to tell his mom, guess what? I found him. So he's he picks up on it and and, and is going to go check it out. But I do um, want to point out that the altercation. Yes. With, with the dickhead. Yes. Um, I think we got our explanation for why that scene plays out the way it does. We got that explanation um, in the Jonathan Kent scene that we just came away from. Mm-hmm. Is that it's not time to show who you are until you choose to decide to show who you are. Right. And so even though... It's an interesting take on the whole Meek and Mild Clark Kent thing. Mm-hmm. He's not pretending to be a coward like he sometimes does cartoonishly in the in the comics. He's just keeping his temper nice and long um, because otherwise he's going to break skulls. <laughs> and A, that's not the person he wants to be. Mm-hmm. And B, he's not ready to show that side of himself yet. But um, – why he is choosing to be that person is not because Superman is always a good person. It's because Jonathan Kent in the previous scene has told us in the story that this is the kind of boy he's trying to raise. Keep yourself a secret. Indeed. And since we're on the subject, number one, this is – its I've tried to avoid making a whole lot of comparisons to Superman the movie – because I think that's a disservice to Superman the movie, and it's a disservice to Man of Steel. They are two separate things and should be evaluated along those lines. But at the same time, that it's almost inevitable to compare goings-on with Man of Steel to the previous uh, – that is to say the Christopher Reeve uh, franchise, right? It's just – it's inevitable. And we've got a diner in Canada, an asshole truck driver – he sexually harasses uh, uh, a, a girl, and then he picks a fight with Clark. Um, guy, I, I'm sorry. I'm I'm just going to put it out there. I really do think this was sort of a, a tip of the hat uh, to Superman 2. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously it plays out in a completely different way. But As it probably should. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, definitely. But the – actually, and we'll come back to that, but – the trappings of it are just too similar for me to ever believe that this was a complete accident. It's, it's not a ripoff. It's a tribute. Now Mm -hmm. there is a, that I I don't know anybody who uh, doesn't love this moment when the bully, he shoves or tries to shove Clark, but Clark being (laughs) virtually a man of steel. (laughs) Yeah. He, he ends up not so much shoving Clark. He ends up pushing himself off of Clark. Right. And, Clark barely even reacts, which is, again, this is one of those little, sometimes it's the small uh, displays of power that I think audiences really connect to, you know, tearing a steel door off its hinges. I think people can better grok that than they can picking up a car and bashing somebody's head in with it. I don't know why, but it's those small things that people react to. And when you have a bully who pushes Clark and ends up pushing himself backwards because Clark is virtually immovable unless he decides he wants to move, people understand what that means, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't, 
I, I saw this movie twice in theaters and I, I within 24 hours. So it's not like I, I don't know what audiences on a sustained basis react how they reacted to this, but in both of the screenings that I went to, the audience they didn't laugh at it. It was it, there was a chuckle that they were in on the joke. You know, they weren't, you know, they, there is a joke that's being told there and they got it. And so, and I don't mean, you know, so I, I just want to clarify that, you know, that I don't mean that they were laughing at it in, in like this Hayden Christensen episode two kind of way. They were laughing with it. And so that having been said, though, this movie is called Man of Steel. And there's this moment where the bully picks up that pitcher of beer and just douses Clark with it. Henry Cavill makes his face. Now, guys, I when I was a kid, I got into fist fights with people all the fucking time. I saw other guys make faces like that on a fairly regular basis, and always it meant your ass. You know? He's not isolated from those feelings. Uh, he doesn't like nobody would like getting doused in beer like that and you know humiliated in front of everybody. He does not enjoy that. But he's got a mission, and he's got also some ma- some very practical advice from from Jonathan. One he, would say he has a morality about how to deal with this kind of situation. Yeah, and and there is that. Let's face it; it is not a fair fight. Now, I do think that Clark giving a little bit of a mild ass whooping there would have been some decent justice, but that's not his mandate. What he needed to do was keep that uh, keep that fucking pervert away from the waitress, which he did, and he needed to sort of diffuse the situation in a way that did not expose him, uh, his secret to everybody, and he did not do that. He realized that there's no way that I can personally deal with this, so I've got to leave. He succeeded in one of his goals, but not completely with the second one. And so... I found that, you know, just it's very mature of him to realize my presence here. I, I'm supposed to diffuse this situation. I'm actually um, exacerbating it now. You know, she's not mm-hmm. getting, you know, uh, pushed around and harassed anymore. So mission accomplished there. The best thing I can do now is leave. And that leads into one of – honestly, this is uh, a little bit of a gripe that I've got uh, with this movie, that Clark basically crucifies that guy's truck now, did that bully deserve some kind of comeuppance? Hey, absolutely. You know, but that I felt was a little bit over the line. I don't care if this man is Superman yet or not. I don't think it's ever moral to take away somebody's ability to earn a living. And you know what? This guy's a, he, he's, he, he's a fucking pervert. He abuses women. He picks fights with uh, with people that he at least thinks are weaker than he is. He's every fucking negative thing in the book. But at the end of the day, he's entitled to have personal property. And if he's capable of keeping his job, he's entitled to that job. And Clark basically took that away from him. And I think that's wrong. Yeah, it works as a joke, but it's not. It does not work too well with 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 scrutiny. Yeah. It was it was a pretty harsh choice on Clark's part. Now. Um, like even if all he did was like melt the tires, I mean, that's yeah. a, that, that's a pain in the ass. But you know what? You can fix that. A crucified truck. I don't know what the fuck you're supposed to do. I I, 
How do you report that to the insurance company, right? So see if it's, see if it's okay again after three days. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, no, no, I, I agree. I mean, I laughed with the rest of the theater. I still laugh. It, it's a funny moment, but it's one that, you know, if we look at, you know, how we're supposed to actually react to this sort of thing in a, in a real life situation, it's, it was, it was pretty harsh yeah. of Clark, but you know what? He's a dude. Yeah, there had to and, be something, you know. And he had real serious dude feelings going on there, and he had to do something. And maybe he didn't make the best choice, but, you know. Yeah. Well, and then from there, we're introduced to uh, Lois Lane. Now, I, I wasn't completely sure of where Clark ends up here. It's the Canadian Antarctic, I guess, because it's not under... Well, it's not Antarctic, but it's the Arctic, but yeah. Oh, fine. Whatever. I always get the two mixed up. Whatever. What am I, a geologist? Um... <laughs> So, but basically, we're we're introduced to Lois, and in short order, we see that Clark has yet again gone undercover as a, just sort of a, a worker bee at this uh, campsite. And there's actually kind of this funny little moment where you know Lois sort of admonishes Clark, "Hey, be careful with those bags; they're heavy." And he's just got you know a couple of them in each hand. Oh, yeah, sure, I'll, whatever. <laughs> and again, I was not at at like at both of the screenings that I went to. I mean. People weren't rolling in the aisles laughing at it, but this whole idea that you know there is no humor in the movie—I'm sorry—I heard people, you know, giggling, you know, at little moments like that, when you know, like appropriately so, you know. I mean, I—I I think the people who are most vocal in this criticism, it's either a there wasn't enough humor, or b they just didn't see this movie and are assuming that there was no humor at all. But it's just little the moments like is, that. They're they're not out to tell a funny movie. This is not a romp. The Avengers is a romp. It's an adventure story. It's it's a popcorn feel good film. That's not what Man of Steel is. And I feel like, oh gosh, this is you know what? <laughs> I love you guys. So please don't take this personally. I just I had to fit, vent a, a feeling here. Um, I feel like movie-going audiences want popcorn feel-good films. And that's not what this is. And I wonder if that's why it got so highly targeted sometimes. Because, you know, we just came off of, you know, all the Iron Man films and Captain America and Thor and the Avengers. And I love all those movies. I do podcasts about those movies. Um, but... This is something different. This is same medium, same category of character, completely different genre of storytelling. I've got a little bit more of a cynical uh, point of view on that. And okay. maybe I'll decide to edit this out later. I, I don't know. But basically, I get the idea that a lot of Man of Steel's opposition comes from really uh, two camps. There's what you might call I don't I don't even want to call them purists, but there's what you might want to say are the prima donners among us. <laughs> okay. Where to them, Richard Donner's Superman, for as entertaining as I find it, and for as I think ultimately beneficial to the character as it was, has assumed this very inappropriate level of influence yeah uh, i mean it's it's definitive in ways that i don't think even donner would would want to say that it is 
but to them it is. I mean, to these, to this batch of fans, anything other, and I'm and this goes as far down the line as you want to take it. But literally anything other than that, that version of Superman is a fucking mockery. It's a disgrace. It's bullshit. It shouldn't exist. You know, just blah 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 blah. And what this works out to is that that group of fans is so fucking blind to Superman the movie's many and varied scabs, flaws, weaknesses, just bad fucking ideas. I have to apologize for that movie to people. Before Man of Steel, I have friends who would, you know, hey, you're a big Superman fan. I want to watch Superman the movie. Okay, I'll let you know what I think about it. And they're coming back and they're like, John, that was kind of silly. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, look, I... Honestly, I mean, the way that modern audiences react to that, there's no accounting for taste. But I think there's a lot of good ideas in that movie. But what I find is that those – not necessarily those same ideas, but that same type of thing in other movies, that same batch of fans are just – fucking the claws come out. Mm-hmm. And so you know, things that they are readily, you know, readily willing to accept about Superman the movie, and for that matter, they even justify and defend – they crucify other versions of Superman for, and so there's there's that group, and I think the other group is this this type of fan that, for whatever reason, really just Superman Returns really resonated with them. I don't know why. The only thing I can think of is that it doesn't matter how shitty the movie is if you put the John Williams theme in there, they'll love it, <laughs> you know, because God knows, it, it, you know, their love for that movie it can't possibly have anything to do with the movie itself. So the only thing I can think of is, hey, music. But you know, I really do feel like that, you know, those two groups. Not to, I don't, and honestly, I don't know how they couldn't feel insulted based on everything I've just said. I truly did not mean it that way, but. It, you know, truly, and if you and, and if you did feel insulted by what I said, then I apologize for what I said. I don't apologize for you feeling insulted because that's kind of talking down to you. I I truly do apologize for what I said. You know, I shouldn't have said that, but it's just nevertheless that is, you know, that that was kind of where I was coming from when I was watching people react to this. This amazing. Well, I shouldn't. I think this was actually a, a really amazing film. Fuck it, I'll say it. Man of Steel was an amazing film, and it was getting picked on for. Honestly, for flaws that I don't think it had, or at least flaws that aren't readily apparent in other beloved incarnations of Superman. So what makes this one different? But anyway, so that I think is at least where part of the hostility comes from. But at least from that moment, you know, we get into uh, Clark, you know, once the campsite starts settling down for the night, Clark departs the campsite and then he starts investigating uh, I don't even – like that's a little hill or a – I don't know if that's a hill or a full-sized mountain or what, but – I think it's a glacier. It's a glacier? Okay, fair enough because um, I was going to ask how he's burning holes through ice if it's a – but fair enough. Okay. Anyway, so he uh, basically lets himself into the to this glacier, and he finds a Kryptonian scout ship. Now, as all of that's going on, Lois has noticed that Clark's leaving the uh, campsite, and then she follows him, and I don't know why – it's really just a, a very simple scene of Clark making his way through the glacier and then Lois following him. I don't know why. I just friggin' love that moment in the movie. It only lasts for like a minute or two, but she's basically mm-hmm. following him. And like the lighting of it, um, 
the I guess the set design, the music, it's got this kind of spooky quality to it, and it's sort of ominous. And I don't know why. You know, I'm I'm sure Zack Snyder would probably be mystified by it, but it's just I fucking love that movie. I could have used another ten minutes of that, but of them just walking around. But I just I love it. So Well the uh the the effect of the um the heat vision mm-hmm. oh, through through the glacier was really cool. Uh and you know, we're we're having this this first encounter between Clark and his Kryptonian background, and it it is full of mystery, some sort of weirdly sinister menace, and not I honestly am not really sure why that little floaty droid was so evil. Um but you know, for whatever for whatever reason that I'm not getting that part of the story, that's fine. Um but yeah. I can no prize that first... if you'd like. Huh? I can no prize that if you'd like. Okay, go for it. Um, when Clark arrives in the glacier, that's a, a I guess you could say a, a sort of a security droid, you know, for that ship. Doesn't know who the hell Clark is, so he attacks Clark. The minute Clark inserts the um, that I don't know what it is, so I'm just going to call it a key uh, into the uh, ignition of the ship. Instantly, the droid stops, but it's still a security droid. And it's not like Clark said, hey, leave Lois the fuck alone. So when Lois shows up, uh, the droid... He goes back into mode. Yeah. And so it interpreted both of them as an attack. So, uh, or as attackers. And it probably does not know camera flashes. And so it probably takes that as an energy beam of some sort. Probably. And attacks her. Because that's what really gets her attacked and never takes a picture of it. Right. So anyway, that's just my little no prize there. You okay, can... well, that, that makes some sense. But anyways, I just I just love it because you know it's the first encounters between all of these people between Clark and Lois between Clark and his past uh, between Lois and the Kryptonian stuff. It's just a really cool piece of the film. And you know, from a thematic standpoint, it actually it really does work for me in that. Again, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but every time Clark makes a major discovery, um, about Krypton or anytime he has a major connection to Krypton. Anytime Krypton comes big time, knocking on Clark's door, Lois is always nearby. And I do find that it's just from a thematic standpoint, it's like I, I don't want to go, go so far as to say that she's his new foundation. Originally it was Jonathan Kent, but now it's Lois who's uh, Clark's foundation. But there's there's disco potential to that, you know, because literally every single time Clark has a major encounter with anything related to Krypton – Lois is either nearby or Clark just had a scene with her. I think it, it helps going toward explaining why they feel the connection. They feel so quickly mm-hmm. because yeah, they've, they've just been through a lot of stuff together. Um, his discovery of his identity is wrapped up in the fact that he just met this girl. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there's, there, there's, there's a lot of reason for them to connect that maybe doesn't fall under the category of your typical romantic stuff. I agree. Well, in any case, um, Clark, uh, he cauterizes Lois's wound. And then uh, from there, he heads off to – now, where where exactly does he go? I mean, obviously, it's a snow-covered wasteland, but I'm not sure if I want to call that the Antarctic or what. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's someplace else in Canada. I mean, northern Canada. You figure 
you know, the southern part of Canada, the part that we usually pay attention to on the map, that's, you know, all your cities and everything. But when you get into northern Canada, there's a lot of tundra and a lot of uninhabitable land. Right. It's just a lot of freaking cold stuff. Yeah. So he's, he's just out there somewhere. Fair enough. Okay. Well, that works. Um, there he gets clued into goings on with, uh, goings on with, with Krypton. Actually, am I getting ahead of the shit here? No, that, no, that's actually, that, that's right. And, um, so Clark saves Lois. He drops her off. He takes off in the ship. And actually, if we go actually by the actual narrative here, what happens is Lois submits her story to Perry and he basically tells her, get the fuck out. I'm not printing this. And so Lois has really no choice but to turn it over to sort of a, a hack blogger who then in turn publishes her story online. Now – Oh, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that Lois spoiled Clark's identity online? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, somewhat. You no, know, she, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not really. I just yeah, – I just said. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, I was actually going to mention that as well. You know, I was thinking – speaking of things that piss people off, but uh, <laughs> wow. Um the story needs for Perry to reject Lois's um, article. All right, that's where, at least for the moment, the story. That's what this story needs to happen right now. That having been said, if we go strictly by you know sort of real world internal logic, I don't know that uh, Perry would necessarily want to uh, publish her story. You know, in spite, I mean, he makes no bones about it. Look, you've got no corroboration for this. The Pentagon, they're saying nothing happened. All right. So you're the only one who's saying that, hey, shit went down. In fact, not only did shit go down, I saw a fucking alien. All right. You're the only one who's saying that. So what he says, though, is I can't publish this story. He doesn't say, go out and get me corroboration. He says, I cannot publish this story. And I've griped about. Uh, news media so friggin' many times on this show. And this, again, to me, is just one of those very believable moments to me that, yeah, this is exactly the way I think news media operate. They don't operate according to what's true. And, guys, I'm not talking about just the one or two networks that you don't like. I mean, fucking all of them. Uh, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, whatever's left of them, all of them, they all basically come to... Any kind of news coverage, any kind of news story with their angle predefined. And if they find a story that doesn't fit with whatever their fucking agenda is, it doesn't get published. Okay? So now, right now, at the time that John and I record this, there is a Democrat president in office. Uh, obviously, before this current president, there was a Republican president in office. And what I find is that certain things protect. Or rather, certain news outlets protect certain political parties, and I'm fucking sick of that. But that's that same type of mentality is what we're seeing here. Perry's already decided the truth of this story, which is to say there is no truth to it, and so he fucking rejects it. It's just a completely fucking uh, typical journalist thing to do. Hey, it, it, truth doesn't matter. What matters is what can we print without getting sued or made a mockery of? That's the stuff that we print. I'm sorry. That's fucking that. That's that. That's cowardly. The same type of thing that pre that prevents um, certain uh, news outlets from. Oh, God forbid, we say anything negative about the Republican Party. You know, can't do that. 
or for that matter, other news outlets who refuse to say anything negative about the Democrat Party. Ooh, definitely can't do that. It's that same type of fucking bullshit mentality that, that that's make, that's forcing Perry to say, I don't care if this story is true or not. I'm fucking not printing it. Period. End of discussion. And um, so I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do here, John, is castigate both sides. That yeah, way. You're, you're, yeah, you're doing fine. You're, you're, yeah, you're there. Okay. So, um, and, so it's, 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 it's a fact that I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to because uh, I don't really pay a lot of attention to the news, um, which I probably should do more of. But, um, dude, and I'm, I'm sorry. Until news media get somehow better their game, all it's going to do is just uh, raise your blood pressure. It's fucking not worth it. And probably either validate or or argue against an opinion that I already have because that's what they do. It seems what you're saying is their 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 purpose is to push agendas and push standpoints rather than pushing news. Right. And anyway, and 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 like, and like I said, I'm not trying to single out one side or the other when I when I do all of this. So, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you're not being singled out. Everybody does it, and so I, I of all things, I really hope you don't take. Your idiot. So I, th- I think you're fine with 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 with. Okay. That. Very good. Very good. All right. So anyway, now I, I cut you off a minute ago. Now what were you saying? I don't know. Something about Superman, probably. Yeah. Um. Basically, I just concluded this sort of rant where, the, ultimately, the point of the scene is, Lois submits her story to Perry. He refuses to print it, and so she gives it to this hack blogger, and uh, he leaks her her uh, story online. And that's really what uh, propels, I, I think, the rest of uh, the non-Clark stuff for the rest of the first act. That's really where, where everything else comes from. You know, the fact that she basically handed over to that fucking zero. And uh, anyway. Well, the ratification of that is um, that she gets called into question along with Clark. Right. Because the blogger leaks her name online. Lois Lane knows who this person is. Yeah. So now not only is the alien in trouble, the, the unknown alien from the point of view of the authorities, but also Lois Lane is is an accomplice. Mm-hmm. So that's the impact that this has on the story. Um, she doesn't actually I, – I made the snarky remark earlier about her spoiling Clark's identity online. I, I want to pull that back because that's not at all what she does. Right. She tells the story that there's an alien out there. But she doesn't tell the story that's Clark. However, it does go into the whole idea of Clark wanting to put himself out there at his own time and his own choosing. And she is doing a little bit to take that away from him, maybe without any malice. Uh, I, I'll actually certainly without any malice because she doesn't know his life story. But that's that that is the off the uh, upshot of what happens. Yeah. And um, I. It, it, this is one of those moments where I did find find it, you know, kind of easy to believe that, shall we say, legitimate news. Whenever they do find something that they find unprintable but nevertheless newsworthy, I find it actually rather easy to believe that they would turn to outlets of, shall we say, less, less repute. repute. Yes, <laughs> and um, this is. Uh, I just found this very easy to believe, like that angle of it. Uh, it, it just felt of a piece with Perry, uh, you know, sort of shooting Lois down on that. And uh, anyway, it's just it's eminently believable. So now do you got anything else you want to add to that section? No, no, I'm good. All right. Now, then from there, and this is where I sort of rushed to a little bit 
just a while ago. Um, you've got Clark. He's meeting with AI Jarrell in, I guess, the Canadian frozen tundra wasteland. And he explains basically just the history of Krypton in brief, but specifically Clark's true origin. And a lot of things come out here was that uh, among them was the fact that Kal-El was conceived naturally as opposed to being genetically engineered. Now, you and I kind of touched on this earlier, but this was one of those things that starting the movie this way, we didn't understand the full importance of that. It's only in this scene that we realize that by Kryptonian custom, Clark shouldn't even fucking exist. Right. But here he is. The uh, Zod called it heresy earlier. Yeah. And Physical that... sex. Physical sex and reproduction is a heretical idea on Krypton. That means it's an anti-religious idea. It goes against their spiritual understandings of how life should be. And, that, and that's bad. That is sick. Yeah, that is – wow. And so anyway, that's just – that's very uh, – th- that was definitely sort of a punch in the balls, so to speak. Um, the other thing that – Speaking of punches in the balls, the other thing that sort of that uh, uh, comes out in all of this is Jarrell and Lara made the affirmative choice not to accompany Cal to Earth. It was not a matter of uh, available space on the ship. It wasn't anything to do with uh, practical concerns relating to Krypton. It wasn't anything to do with any of that. They wanted to isolate Clark from their influence. They wanted them to know that he loved them, that they loved him. But they didn't want to be there to color Clark's – his upbringing. They didn't want to give him their flaws. And to Yeah, Jorel makes a brief comment earlier or was it – when does he say that you know we are of Krypton? It was this scene. Is it this scene? Okay. And honestly, like all throughout, um, I really dig – the way that Cavill plays this scene um, because there's this sort of confusion, but there's also this interest. I mean, this is, these are the answers he's wanted his entire life. I'm Cal. That's my name. And then, you know, he and Jarrell have, you know, their conversation. And then again, Cavill asks, why didn't you come with me? And you can, there's this longing in his voice. It's not really pain, but he said, you know, it's just, there's so much sometimes, like I said, these sensations, they sometimes defy words, but there's this this longing to it that, you know, we could have been a family perhaps. And Jarrell has very valid, very lucid reasons for not wanting to come to earth with him. This was a sacrifice that he was prepared to make. Laura was too. It wasn't by accident that they couldn't come. This was something that they were intentionally depriving their son and if you think about that i mean that is fucking that's amazing you know how many people how many parents could uh, i don't know that's just that that's huge to me is what i'm saying yeah the um the differences in the fathers is is always interesting to me because you have you have Jor-El, who has taken a very hands-off approach to his son and just said, you know what, I'm sending you out there to learn what it is to be human and to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. 
And so I can have no impact on you in doing that, except for a little inspirational speech before you go fly. And then you have Jonathan, who is teaching Clark basically the same endpoint idea from a very different philosophical perspective. He's teaching Clark, you need to learn what it is to be human. And then when you're, when you're older, you can decide what kind of impact you want to have on the world. Mm-hmm. They're, they're giving him the same goal to be a normal person as much as possible until you're ready to be otherwise. But they're doing it with very different motivations and very different philosophies behind it. And it's just interesting that, that Clark's very different fathers are giving him the same mission in life. Hmm. It's a good point. Very good point, actually. And the key to all of that is – and this is actually where, as you say, this is where it really does become explicit, where you know it's his mandate to lead the world into a better future – Jarrell doesn't just give Clark that mission. He gives him the tools to do the job. He, he gives him the Superman outfit. And one of the things that kind of struck me back on uh, you know the Krypton, the Krypton scenes is that this was a very – their fashions were very drab. You, know, you had some dark blues here and there, but basically there were a lot of browns, a lot of blacks, a lot of uh, grays and other things. And – it, this was just not the world's most colorful place, let's face it. The outfit that Jarrell gives to Superman is definitely Kryptonian in design, but the but it's so much more colorful. It's got those bright reds and bright blues and everything. And this is this comes in the same the same scene where he tells Clark, You're here to be the bridge between between two worlds. And he gives him this outfit that has a lot of earth colors on it, but it's still fundamentally Kryptonian in design. That, too, is the merging together of two worlds. Kryptonian clothing, but earth colors. Interesting. And so he's – I mean the symbol – I mean this, this thing – this movie invests a certain amount of symbolism in uh, Superman's outfit that, again, I don't think – has ever really been attempted in in previous Superman media, or if it has, I'm just I'm blanking on it. But it 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 symbolizes basically Clark's mission, ultimately to to lead mankind, to guide them. Again, not as a dictator, but as an inspiration. And I I just that was the moment that the the suit is it's literally unveiled. I just thought that was so friggin' powerful and effective. Because um, the again the sim I mean because in this very scene that this is happening you see Jarrell's outfit which looks nothing at all like Superman's so this was an affirmative choice a conscious decision that Jarrell was making to tailor the suit in this in this sort of way so I just thought that was extremely effective and then from there we get again one of the most effective scenes in the movie and it's like it gets no no play for it or I don't know it's basically Superman teaching himself how to fly and he's i guess through trial and error he's discovered some of the boundaries of his powers but he doesn't necessarily understand the full extent of what he's able to do and so he has to by force of will teach himself how to fly and the moment he finally does master it this is one of the most definitive 
in fact, it may be the definitive uh, Superman flying sequence in live action that I can think of. Mm-hmm. And it's it's Clark. He's enjoying being able to fly. And apart from that one, that sort of brief moment in Superman the movie where uh, Superman and Lois go uh, sort of on a on a tour of New York. I mean Metropolis. <laughs> you don't really yeah. see that Superman like smiling when he flies. You know, it's just it's a matter of procedure yeah of course i can fly but the idea like what that really means like dude you can fly fuck and i have to tell a story about that oh go right ahead please do so whenever the promos for this film were coming i was so excited so jazzed and as is my want whenever i'm really excited i share with as many people as i can captivate into listening to me um i know you're not a fan of the show but back whenever doctor who came out I was so excited about those first episodes in 2005 that I would, when friends came over, I was like, can I have 45 minutes? Can I just show you this? So whenever the promos were coming out, I was showing them to my students in my intensive math class because it was the end of the year. It was testing season. You know, we were kind of, kind of chiseling because that's the American school systems work after testing system, after testing season. And I was, I was not their actual math teacher. I was in an elective supportive math class anyways i was showing movie trailers sometimes mm-hmm. and i remember this one girl and i forget her name and i probably shouldn't even say it if i didn't know her name oh that's fine but yeah. um but I, I i queued up the trailer on her computer and then it was like it was on a computer table so i was i was saying behind the computer i could see her face as she was watching the screen below me um and it was like she had never seen superman before so she's watching the trailer and I forget which one it was it was showing, but she's like, oh, so he's really strong. Okay. And she's watching and watching, and she gets to the whole takeoff thing, and her eyes light up, and she's like, and he can fly? Wow. And it was just – it was really, really cool to watch somebody see Superman for the first time. That is cool, yeah. It was really, really neat. I don't know if she saw the movie. I didn't see after that because it's eighth grade and she's off to the summer and she's going to be in ninth grade the next year. But but it was just like – it was cool to watch somebody see Superman for the first time. Well, and you know what? That actually – you know what? That's actually very much on topic. It's kind of fragmenting things a little bit, but whatever. That's the way the sh- this show seems to want to go anyway. Um, I mentioned a, a moment ago – I mentioned the uh, Prima Donners and – I don't know if I fully developed that point, but what I, apart from just their loyalty to the uh, to the Reeve Superman films, I think what they ultimately really rebelled against was the uh, concept of a reboot. And their perspective on this appears to be that we already have a film where Superman begins. It's called Superman the Movie, so people can just watch that, and it they basically just never really accepted the fact that you needed a reboot to give the younger audience, the people that are just way too young to have ever seen uh, uh, Superman the movie, wouldn't have given it the time of day even if they could have, give them a point of access into the legend. And you know what? The the, uh, baby boomers had it. Generation X had it a couple of times. The millennials need it too. And so 
it's I, I would almost say at this point that Superman is it he's starting to become a little bit of an American birthright. And tied up with all of that is the ability to see a man fly. And I, you know, I, I, I think that when you when you can get your head around that, you know, the idea that, yes, we do need a reboot. These kids today deserve to have their they, – they, look, previous generations, they had Kirk Allen. They had George Reeves. They had Christopher Reeve. To whatever degree you want to take these guys seriously, Dean Cain, Tom Welling, John Hames Newton, Gerard Christopher, all of them, fine. All of them are fine in their place, but we need Henry Cavill today. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a reboot, I mean, I I didn't need to be persuaded about that after about 1997 or 98 around there. It took Superman fandom at large a much longer time to get comfortable with that idea. But um, I think it, by attrition, if nothing else, it's actually starting to happen. And I think the proof is in the pudding. When I hear stories like that, it just proves to me the viability – not the viability oh, – well, yeah, the viability, but also the validity – of a reboot. This was the right idea. This is really what we should have gotten back in 2006 and didn't. And I'm going to, I'm going to tack onto that. Something that is, is very different thematically, but just kind of adds a different layer to why a reboot. Mm-hmm. Um, the origin of Superman that was told in this film was integral part and parcel with the storytelling they wanted to do, not only in Man of Steel, but to all uh, um, evidence we've seen so far, the impact of this particular origin of Superman is going to be carried over into Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Correct. So, and the amazing Spider-Man gave a reboot for Spider-Man. Whenever we had only had a a first origin of of Spider-Man, you know, 10 years earlier. Yes. And there was, there was, you know, clamor about that. But again, the origin of Spider-Man as told in that film was very important to the myth and story that they were going to tell in the amazing Spider-Man, the amazing Spider-Man two, And the, I am so sad, honestly, super sad that we are not going to get the amazing Spider-Man three. Okay. Let's put this man of steel bullshit on hold for just a moment. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Fuck. I am too. You know, I'm the guy in the room that liked Amazing Spider-Man 2. I liked – look, was it – I thought it was a little bit bloated, a little bit overly long. But fuck, man. I mean that – number one, that is a Spider-Man theme right there, dude. Yeah. Number two, that's a Spider-Man leading man. Andrew Garfield represent. That guy's fucking – I loved him as as Peter. Yeah. And, you know, look, I I was never really all that big on Tobey Maguire. I don't dislike the guy, but it's just I, – I don't – I guess there's a performance there that I'm just not seeing that everyone else is. And, 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 you know, it goes along with his Mary Jane. I like Kirsten Dunst. I've been in love with her since, you know, interview I saw her interview with Vampire. Yeah, me too. But, but she, whether because of her or because of her direction, she did, she was not Mary Jane in that film. Yeah. And uh, I think she could have done the Mary Jane of the comics because I've seen her do that kind of performance before. She actually does it for five seconds whenever she sees Flash's new car and runs out there. Yeah. You know, if that five seconds we saw of Mary Jane running out there all excited had actually been the Mary Jane we got, it would have been great. But no, there are there are I I I liked the Spider-Man trilogy we got. I enjoyed it. I'm even one of the few that wouldn't mind seeing Spider-Man 3 again. But well, I love Spider-Man 3, yeah. 
but the the amazing spider-man was my spider-man <laughs> and i caught some flack for saying it before but i'll say it again whenever he's swinging through those um like all the people of New York, the the construction people have like rotated their cranes out, and he's swinging through there. I I, I felt this swell inside, and I was like, this must have been what people who saw Superman the movie felt like about Superman. You know, I I loved that. And the Amazing Spider-Man two came. We got more of the story, and we're not getting the Amazing Spider-Man three. And I. I know I'm going to like the new Spider-Man, or I figure I probably will. I'm sure I'm going to enjoy Civil War, but the whole time I'm going to be having to get past the fact that my Spider-Man didn't get the fucking end of his story. Well, yeah, or if he did, it's a very bittersweet thing. I mean, for that, he ended on a on a very positive and very powerful heroic note. You know, uh, saving that boy from the rhino and then taking on the rhino. And you can kind of figure he probably kicked the rhino's ass. But either way, Spider-Man's back in business. Uh, yeah, they, they had a trilogy planned, and, and I was really looking forward to the yeah. rest of the trilogy. I, and, yeah, I couldn't... Ugh, yeah, and look, I mean, we're here to talk about Man of Steel, and that's fine. But I, I, I'm sorry, I cannot let that slide. That Those two movies... Look, I, I thought Amazing Spider-Man, it was good. I enjoyed it. Um, I don't take this the wrong way. I didn't really see like the I didn't completely see the necessity of it. But it's kind of like if, if we found out that Iron Man Four is coming tomorrow, who is gonna complain about another Iron Man movie? Holy shit, we're getting another Iron Man movie, dude! Shut the fuck up. But I, I just I, I didn't see the need. But I certainly enjoyed what I got. But Amazing Spider-Man Two, they had just this uh, this very interesting take on the Spider-Man mythos. And it actually kind of taught me that, you know what? Spider-Man does not have a story, as I always assumed. He, he has mythos, just like Batman, just like Superman. And you can do different things with... I mean, it's not necessarily Marvel's trademark to do this, but there is malleability to that story. It can be what it needs to be to be timely. And... Ultimate Spider-Man, as a comic book series, didn't completely convince me of that. Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2 did. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it's a crying shame, as you say, that it's not going to get the sequel that... I'm sorry, just from, a, just from a creative standpoint, I think it deserves. They mm-hmm. earned that sequel. And now, the box office maybe wasn't there the way that it should have been, and I'm, I'm sorry for that. But I'm sorry. But I'm also sorry that you know what, movies have made less profit than that and still gotten sequels. So get out of my fucking face with that, you know? Yeah. That, that, it, it did not meet their expectations. That does not mean that it did not do well. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, if there was like to whatever degree there is a flaw with those movies, I would say it's only timing. If they'd waited even a couple of more years, I think the story would have been much different. Now we probably wouldn't have Andrew Garfield in the role. And so I don't know if I'd be prepared to accept that because I look, I cherish Andrew Garfield uh, as Spider-Man in a way that I just didn't with uh, McGuire. Again, I'm not shitting on Tobey Maguire. He's a solid actor. I just never saw what the hype there was all about. He, I just thought he was very functional in the role. And whereas I looked at Andrew Garfield and I thought, okay, this, 
a tiny little bit of emo Spider-Man, but still Spider-Man. And more so, I would say, than Tobey Maguire was. And it just felt like the internal struggles and dilemmas that we that we all associate with Spider-Man, the things that he's got to learn from, uh, the ordeals that he's got he's to experience and fucking survive. Losing Uncle Ben, losing Gwen, always worrying about Aunt May, etc., etc., Garfield encapsulated all of that, and sometimes he could do it just with a simple facial expression, you know? Yeah. Or this sort of uneasy, trembling, not a trembling smile, but this sort of uneasy smile. It's, he's smiling because he feels like he needs to, not because he's, right. he, he really feels it. And there's, because there's, there is kind of an artifice to, to Peter Parker's teenage existence that I don't know how the hell this guy did it, but he just made it look so effortless. I never once bought it of Tobey Maguire. I never doubted it with Andrew Garfield. Sorry, I didn't mean to rant at you, but I'm I'm, no, I'm, no, no, I'm no, a little I, bit uh, sensitive and protective of those movies. So. Oh yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Just 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 to bring it back though, that um, you know we may maybe didn't need an origin story when the Amazing Spider-Man came out because we just had one ten years ago, but it was part and parcel with the storytelling. Mm-hmm. So whenever they complain about whenever they you know quote unquote they complain about a new origin. In modern day movies and modern day storytelling, I feel like you kind of have to have a starting point. And, you know, it, it it feels natural with this film that the origin was there because it was an important part of the story. Now, there are other ways to do it. The Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon series, which also I love. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Did not start with the origin of Spider-Man. You got it in a five-minute flashback in the first or second episode, but did not start there. Um, And so there are other ways of doing it where you don't have to have an origin. Um, But I'm glad that we did. I'm hoping that the new Spider-Man that Sony and Marvel are doing together whenever he has his own solo film, that it's not another freaking origin. Just take the idea that he's Spider-Man as Red have a flashback about the death of Uncle Ben half an hour into the film and move forward. The fact that he's starting out in the franchise as being in Civil War, I think is going to help with that because I think they're going to just establish him as an already present character in that film and let it go forward from there. I agree. And I I honestly, the only reason that I'm okay with this is because it's Marvel Studios handling it. If it was Sony... I would actually be rebelling, but since it's... Yeah, because Sony, if Sony had shot themselves in the ass on a franchise that they'd already made for no reason except for whatever, I would be pissed. The only reason I'm okay with this is because it was done to integrate Spider-Man into the Marvel Studios franchises. And that's 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 reasonable. I'm just going to be sad about it at the same time. I agree. And that, I think, would be a convenient place to pause. Now, uh... John, I'm really going to have to apologize to you in this. I'm actually going to need to uh, uh, break this apart into two separate episodes. You uh, fiend! <laughs> well, you know, um, it's it, it's just the way that things ended up sort of working out. And so, now, for those of you who don't know, um, John uh, agreed to be part of this episode on the condition that uh, he stick around for about an hour and, you know, we say whatever it is that we need to say about Man of Steel and then, you know, we move on. And so... 
this is obviously a lot more than John originally bargained for. So first of all, I'd just like to thank you for uh, giving me what's shaping up to be, like very quickly shaping up to be uh, three hours. It may even be more than that. But thank you very much. I really appreciate you, you know, giving me so much of your time. And also, um, uh, you know, before we, you know, call it a day, uh, why don't you tell everybody, you know, where they can find you? Well, um, one of the quirks to your recording schedule is that where I am right now might not necessarily be where I am some time from now, yes. but probably where I'm going to be is the same place I've been for a while, which is that my daughter and I do a podcast about the Avengers comics from the 60s um, or with the conceit that if, uh, if a character appears in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we are going to talk about their original comics and work our way slowly forward through the 1960s. Um, along the way, we have also been doing a Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch of all the films and television episodes yes, and doing doing brief discussions about those along the way. So that's been lots of fun. Um, there are a couple other irons in the fire that I've been thinking about doing. I'm just not going to mention them right now because I'm not... When I started to do them last night, I just wasn't feeling it. So I don't even know if I'm going to do it now. But um, but yeah, Avengers Inspirations is definitely a podcast that I enjoy doing that I would like for you to check out. And that is available at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, which you can do a Google search for and click under the Podcasts tab. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, John, thank you again uh, for joining in with me. I got to tell you, man, the um, the fact of the matter is... Every time you and I talk about Superman, it always ends up going a lot longer than I originally intended. So, first off, I just want to apologize, but also I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, join in with me, giving me what's, like I say, shaping up to be three hours of your time when you originally only agreed to just one hour. It's really cool of you to do that. And so, that is pretty much that. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? 
well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world. Mm. As her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the Ant-Man before we had a whole film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad, don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh, yeah, Avengers Inspirations Podcast. Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles and the internet broke in half. No. No. That's not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right, or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com.
so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.